week, I spoke with Vanessa. Vanessa is a woman that I met locally, I believe through the art scene. One of my first memories of Vanessa, I planned a a day in 2016. It was called Be Kind Scranton Day. And I just wanted to, I actually wanted to celebrate um, my two-year recovery from maybe one of the worst depressions I've ever had. And I, to do that, I wanted to put something out into the world, uh, and I wanted to have a day dedicated to random acts of kindness. And it was the first really big event that I ever planned, and I was really nervous about it. It wound up being in July, and we got a heat wave that day, so it was extremely hot. And the day, was it was an all-day event. I had uh, people playing music, and there were a lot of different activities set up. It was really cool. And one of my favorite parts was that Vanessa came out to join, and maybe this is actually where I met her. And she, she had her free hugging sign. But the most amazing thing was that she just, her energy about this event was just so excited. She was so happy. She loved it to the point that when it was over at four and I was done, I was so exhausted. The heat was so much. I was like, I just want to go home and eat something and chill. And she was still going. And I loved that. I really, really loved that. She has this beautiful spirit, illuminating face. And whenever you see her out, she's just so kind and she's always willing to give you a hug. But I'm going to let her tell you about what helps her get by. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. I am here with my friend Vanessa. Vanessa has been kind enough to take the time to chat with me even though I have changed the time of doing this three times. So I'm very appreciative. Vanessa, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. Great. I'm glad to hear that. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'd love to. So yeah, my name is Vanessa. I live in Scranton and have have been here for about 35 years came to college here and then just stayed and I work as a social worker and a counselor in the field of mental health with kids and adults. I've been doing that for 35 years. I live here in Scranton with my wife and I really, beyond being a social worker or a therapist, I think my biggest mission or goal is to try to offer support to people, be a positive light and um, guide for people as they need it, really try to help people to understand how to create a peaceful path for themselves, and just trying to create inspiration. I've done that through a number of ways, most recently as offering free hugs, which has been kind of a weird thing right now, of course, but with COVID, and but I um, believe that People will uh, see the importance of connection, either physically or beyond that, through all of this. And that's kind of kind of been the change in my focus recently is that I'm not with people as much physically. So I've been trying to connect in other ways that maintain that importance for people. Awesome. Well, that's um, a lot to dig into. And I am... Absolutely going to ask you about the Hugging Army a little bit later. Also, how COVID is affecting that, um, because I know that's one of your life missions, so it's got to be difficult right now. But I wanted to ask you, where did you originally, uh, where were you born? So I was born in Florida and moved when I was only a few weeks old with my parents to Massachusetts and I actually grew up in Massachusetts and New Hampshire until I came to college in Scranton and then I've been here ever since I went to college so oh okay well that's cool <laughs> so I love 
New Hampshire, I've only been there for about an hour of my life, but we crossed the border from Massachusetts and there was this amazing breakfast place, but they had maple coffee, I guess. Um, mm. And I never had that before and it was so good and I dream about that place. The trees were, it was so gorgeous. I'm like, I need to go back to New Hampshire at some time. Yeah, it's beautiful there. It's really, really lovely. And I wouldn't want to live there, I don't think, because I really love Scranton. It's become my home, but I do love New England. It has a beautiful feel to it, and the seasons are just brilliant there. Really beautiful. It's nice to hear from somebody who likes Scranton enough to stay here. <laughs> yeah. I like yeah, we've, that. We've, uh, we've wanted to move um, three or four times, Brenda and I, my wife, and uh, she's grown her whole life she was born here and has never left and but then we always find something that kind of brings us back whether it's friends or family or connection or community or the arts or music it, there's just always something that pulls us back it really has captured my heart being here yeah I feel the same I mean I moved three times I've moved away and each time I've been pulled back but also mm. And you know that, but um, also the art scene, like that it's hard to come by a similar scene in -hmm. other places. I mean, big cities obviously have scenes, but it's not as tight knit. So I don't know if everyone knows each other as much or supports each other as much. I don't know. It's just different. It's a special thing. And I really, I agree with you. It's hard to find it anywhere else. Um, So that's good. Well, we're certainly very happy to have you. And I wanted to ask you what made you decide to get into social work? The original reason was I really wanted to, when I was a kid and a teenager, just really had this desire to help people. You know, I wasn't sure what that looked like. At first, I thought I wanted to be a teacher. So I started out in college studying to be a teacher. And then it seemed like it was more than that, that beyond being in the classroom, I wanted to be really in the thick of things with people struggling, kids, adults, you know, that were really trying to make make a better life for themselves. I started studying it in my undergrad at Marywood and just loved it. I loved the perception of helping people to better their own lives. I loved that anyone could be potentially having difficulty and, you know, there would be supports there to to assist them. And I've had a lot of different kinds of experiences in social work as far as career, but all of them have really benefited me in really seeing the value in people and, you know, the humanness that exists in them and in all of us and the ability for anyone really to overcome things that they have been challenged with. It's really beautiful. That is amazing. And especially, too, that you knew it at uh, such a young age. And it was fueled by such a genuine passion to help others. Um, So so you said you had three different, was it like types of social work that you were involved in? Well, I've done, yeah, I've done a lot with kids. So the biggest part of my career uh, was working with kids that were in foster care. And um, I did that for about 15 years. And that was the longest gig that I did in social work. And it was really, it was really heart wrenching at times, because Mm -hmm. a lot of the kids went through some really terrible stuff. But it was also really lovely and rewarding to meet these children that against so many odds had really um, been determined to be safe and to create a better life for themselves. And I met so many beautiful families that were willing to open their homes and their hearts for kids that they didn't even know. That was really a beautiful part of that as well. And then I've also done therapy in homes with families and kids. That was pretty intense, but it was also really um, rewarding. But what I do now is I work with, I meet a lot of adults, and I meet with them, all people that are either in active addiction or have mental health diagnoses, and many of which I'm meeting with in drug and alcohol facilities or on inpatient psychiatric units. And I'd never done that in my career before where I'd actually been in these levels of care that 
are the acute, like people are at their um, lowest point and really like needing the most intense help. It's really helped me, even though I've been doing this for 30 years up to this point, it really has helped me just in the last couple of years to really see the, you know, the human capacity for see my ability to see my sameness with that person sitting across from me so even if they're experiencing symptoms I can't relate to I can still see that there's a human being in there that's really struggling and in in the mental health community it can be really hard to for that to be visible in a human being it gets covered up by names and diagnoses and medications and it it just it gets really messed up and it's really helped me to see that all stripped away and just see the human being sitting across from me. It's really, really humbling. That's amazing. How did you come to start to see people that way? It, it's a strange thing. It, it, I think even though it wasn't related to my career, I think doing the hugging kind of led me on that path to begin with. But I remember distinctly about three years ago, I was asked to come and do hugs at a walk that NAMI was having, National Association on Mental Illness here in Scranton. And I remember feeling really self-conscious about it, thinking I had these perceptions. And I don't know if it sounds offensive. I don't mean for it to, but I, I perceived that people that had mental health diagnoses that were really, you know, struggling or having symptoms would be uncomfortable with touch or wouldn't want to be hugged. It was a very interesting, strange perception I had. Mm -hmm. And it ended up being this beautiful, brilliant opportunity to meet these really great people. And um, many of which, some of which weren't comfortable with physical touch, but many of which were. Shortly after that, through my day job, I started going to visit people on psychiatric units, which I had not done before with any regularity. And it was their stories, to be honest, you know, their stories of relationship problems or wanting to lead a physically healthier life or past trauma or death of a loved one, like things that, you know, many of which I've also experienced and I really understood in a profound way I am, we are the same, that we, our struggles may be different, the form may be different, but on a very universal level, we are, we are identical as humans. It was, it was really a major shift and I didn't expect it after doing it so many years, but I had also started viewing people as sick, quote unquote, and needing help or fixing and more as being whole and complete, but just maybe needing some support to get to where they need to go next. It's, it's, it's a, it was a subtle shift, but it was one that was necessary to not see people as broken, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think too, with mental health, it's hard because it, it always shows in behaviors and mm-hmm. uh, it's very easy to have the illness or the whatever the person the soul get lost in these behaviors that people um find to be disruptive Mm -hmm. so it's hard it is kind of hard I think to not make people who are struggling an enemy based on the things that they do when they may not necessarily do you understand what I'm trying to say yeah for sure (laughs) Yeah. Or to or to see it as something being wrong with it. Like I think the mental health the helping part of the mental health community. I mean, one of the things that I I do in terms of the language and the language I use is I don't use the term mental illness only because I think it equates it with someone being sick. And I know that some people define their mental health diagnoses as an illness, just like some people with addiction diagnose themselves or call themselves as having a disease or an illness. So I don't, I don't diss that for any other person, but I don't like to use it in reference to other people because I don't want to label them in that way and prejudge them in that way. So I view it more universally as we all have mental health that at some points is lesser or, you know, just like our physical health, our mental health is sometimes really on top of our game and other times we're really struggling. How can I view people 
as broadly as possible. I mean, I hear stories all the time from people that are, you know, people, you know, receiving services on these units and people that are serving them using, you know, judgmental language or, or referring to someone as a quote unquote schizophrenic versus someone diagnosed with schizophrenia, like language that gets used as a way to almost attack a person for something that they don't know how to manage or something they don't have any control over. And I really, I get really sensitive to that because it becomes a good way or an easy way for us to view people as not mattering and being less than than we see ourselves as. And I get really, I get really tuned into that, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And it's, maybe you can give me some advice here because one of the questions I like to ask people and I wanted to ask you as well is, you know, what kind of, I say like what mental health struggles have you had? But I, I do like, I do struggle about the wording so much Mm -hmm. because I don't know the right way to ask like what, you know, it's just the wording. I don't like the word mental illness either because I don't like myself to be considered like as a sick person Mm -hmm. um, because I've had my own struggles so yeah but I don't know what the right word is yeah well the language changes all the time I know that's easy an easy thing to say I do a lot of um public uh like trainings and offerings presentations to school districts and community groups on mental health issues on uh, building resiliency on suicide prevention, those kind of things. And the language is constantly changing, meaning what is more correct to say versus not. I'm a person that believes that it's not the word you use, it's the intention behind the word. So if you use, even if uh, someone uses language that sounds like it's an old term for something, if the intention is genuinely caring and um, compassionate I think that comes across and I think people that are informed can correct us if they're not comfortable with the language but I want to see people my goal is always to try to see people and treat them as if they're I see them as a human being I see them as capable of changing their life if they want to change their life I see them as being creative beings and, you know, I don't label everything as a symptom. So it's less about language and more even about um, how I see that person. So, for example, you know, I'll, I'll go on an inpatient unit where people are labeled because they hear something that no one else can see. So they automatically have some label slapped on them when maybe they've sustained trauma or the death of a loved one. And when I've gone through the death of a close family member, I've thought I could see them. I've heard their voice. I've never been diagnosed with anything. I've never had chronic symptoms, but I could easily be labeled with something because I experienced something that other humans do. So we, we've come as a society, I think to, to just be quick to attach a label to people. I saw this documentary a couple years ago called Crazy Wise. It's a beautiful film because it's a documentary that focuses on all different worldly cultures and how their perceptions are so different than ours in terms of people that are labeled as different. And in our country, we label them as being, you know, having a mental health disorder versus other cultures that see these behaviors or symptoms these people show as brilliant gifts of talking with ancestors and you know like really powerful stuff Mm -hmm. and I've really tried to think about that more expansively I've met a woman on an inpatient unit who says she talks to angels and her psychiatrist labels her as being delusional and I think it's pretty cool that she talks to angels you know I don't I don't think there's anything psychiatrically involved in that I think it sounds like a spiritual belief she has that's been labeled over time And, um, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I see happen that I get discouraged with, but I just still do my best to see the person as a person. Yeah, absolutely. And I have had, you know, my own spiritual experiences and 
with the death of my aunt have experienced, you know, things that I have perceived as messages coming through. Um, Mm -hmm. And I go to therapy every week. And I remember, like, one of the first times it it got brought up, I was so afraid to even tell my therapist because I was like, "Uh uh-oh, you know, like, she's going to think I'm crazy. Like, Mm -hmm. and so that is what's scary. And then, but then, you know, I speak with a lot of people who have these spiritual experiences. I'm fortunate enough to have a therapist who is very open to that. But, you know, it is scary in a system where people fall through the cracks. You don't know who's really treating who. Things Mm -hmm. could, like, it's just like a, you know, the line is kind of blurry of, like, what qualifies as quote-unquote schizophrenic for one person could be really spiritual for another person so that that's really what is difficult with the way that our mental health system has um kind of evolved I guess but I think it's great to hear that you have found your own ways to overcome that Mm-hmm. So, in the spirit of that, did you want to share any, maybe, things from your own mental health journey? Things you've overcome or experienced? Sure. So, I've never, I, I've I've been in therapy a couple times in my life that was really beneficial. Um, I've never been prescribed medication or quote-unquote diagnosed necessarily, but I've struggled with things like anxiety and depression on and off. It's never interfered with my day-to-day living much, but it has affected the quality of my life and the quality of my relationships. What I've come to understand deeply is that, I mean, I don't have any value judgment about psychiatric medications. I believe that they literally save some people's lives as they can gain their own skills and how to take control of their lives if it feels really unmanageable. And I know other people use other, like, psychedelic type of medications to assist in that as well. Like, again, I don't have any judgments around that, but I really wanted to, for myself, build a life that I was pretty self-reliant on building skills to live not just a happy life but a peaceful life. You know, I've actively over the last few years, years after therapy, and I mean, I've 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 been sober for two years earlier in my life and been in AA, and that helped. Like I've done different things to kind of self help. The biggest thing that's been beneficial for me has been studying present moment awareness and really developing a practice of being in the now, using my breath seeing the purpose and and the meaning in my life, um, understanding my own impermanence and the impermanence of all things. It's really helped me to um, live a fuller life, but also to let go of things that I don't have any control over, which is basically everything. Um, It's helped me to feel less dependent on the world to satisfy my feeling happy or sad and more on just appreciating everything that comes my way but also just everything mainly as it is that's a really difficult practice when difficult circumstances happen but it's actually the best time to enhance those skills at least I'm noticing that for myself that No matter what's happening around me, I get to choose. I get to be here now and be aware of the, you know, the endless infinity of this moment without depending on the, the moment having to look a certain way. That's brought me so much peace contentment to live out my life however long that that is you know I'm I'm happy to just kind of be with life as it is most of the time not all the time but most of the time I live pretty contented that's awesome and so when you started thinking in that way of being in the here now what kind of resources maybe did you explore or how did you get turned on to that you know do you have for other people who may not really be as familiar, how can they kind of seek out uh, those teachings of impermanence and stuff? 
Spiritually, I was raised Christian, but I haven't really ascribed to that so much in my life the last 10 or 15 years. But um, a lot of what around impermanence and suffering and letting go surrender is a lot of um, things around Buddhist teachings. So those, uh, I don't study Buddhism, but I think a lot of the things that I believe are similar to Buddhism. But the writer that I read the most, that I listen to every day is Eckhart. His name is Eckhart, E-C-K-H-A-R-T, and his last name is Tolle, which is T-O-L-L-E. He wrote a book called The Power of Now, probably 20 years ago now, and it changed my life as far as just reminding me of what is already the truth, which is that there is never anything beyond this moment. This is it. There's no future. There's no past. We They're just memory traces or anticipation and I've read that book or listened to it on audiobook probably three dozen times because it's just it's a constant reminder to me of how to use the skills every day and he doesn't really tell you how to do it he just reminds you of that truth and yeah. he talks about the ways in which we throw up barriers to to acknowledging that truth and a lot of that is that most of us live in the past through regret or resentment or unresolved whatever trauma grief unforgiveness towards someone or something or we're anticipating something we want to happen in the future whether that's tomorrow or the vacation we're going to take in three months i mean we all are understanding now how There is nothing we can really plan for, nothing. It's been a very acute way, like in our immediate day-to-day living, way for me to understand that presence really is all there is unless I want to be consumed by anxiety and fear. One One of the most brilliant things I've noticed through having a presence practice and just trying to keep coming back to the present, which I always use my breath for. It's really the best tool for coming back to now because when I'm talking to kids in schools about it, I tell them, you know, we involuntarily breathe 24-7. Our body knows what to do. But when we introduce conscious breath into our being, even if it's just five in and out breaths, it does something to our whole physiological and mental system that allows us to just calm and, you know, become more in this moment Mm -hmm. rather than projecting into something outside of ourselves. And, you know, right now that's saving my, my well-being is being able to just keep coming back to that in a world that everything every day is pretty much completely out of our control so it's really essential to use it especially right now I love that so much um so is that so okay so then throughout your day when you do feel maybe off centered is that what you will do like you'll stop and you'll just pay attention to your breathing I'll do I'll do breathing I have a book another book by Eckhart Tolle it's called Stillness Speaks And it just has little, like, two or three sentence reminders in it that I'll carry with me that will help me to remember. I'll listen to him on YouTube and, you know, for 10 or 15 minutes, and that'll kind of reset myself a little bit. I'll go outside. That helps me get back into presence a lot, too, is nature. So where we live in Scranton is really close to Lake Scranton, and we spend a lot of time there. You know, three or four days a week, we're walking up there and walking in, walking in the wooded path, sitting on the rocks, just doing our best to be in nature and um, be one with nature is a good reminder, I think, at least for me, is because it just is doing its thing. The flowers aren't trying to be beautiful. The trees fall and die and become compost. The, the fall leaves drop off the trees like nothing's trying to look any certain way or do anything a certain way nature is just unfolding as it does 
And yeah, I mean, I always think this with trees because I think it's, you know, everybody's trying to, like, move somewhere or go on vacation, you know, like, travel. And then sometimes I'm like, I wish I could do that, but I can't, you know. And then I look at a tree and I'm like, you know, a tree gets planted where it gets planted and it's there for the rest of its life. And it makes the best out of it, so. It does. It yeah. does. I mean, when we go into the woods at Lake Scranton, I don't look at the woods and think it's in disarray, you know, it's so disorganized or it's so so messy. I just yeah. think how beautiful that everything is laid out precisely as it's meant to be and that's just the cycle of nature and or the cycle of the seasons or whatever it is. And so nature is another one of those things that really helps me and also anything that's associated with any of our senses that seems to either bring us comfort or an ability to kind of come back out of our thoughts. Our thoughts are so rampant. They just never stop. Our mind is self-propelled. It never slows down. So we have to do our best to remember to have tools that we can use to kind of interrupt that self-propelled machine of the mind. Like I'll do something like light it a stick of incense and that will break the monotony of my thoughts because I'm then engaged with something that I enjoy the smell of or Mm -hmm. music that I enjoy. So anything that helps tune you in on with any of your senses that kind of disengages you from that repetitive nature of the mind is how, how it works for me. That makes sense. And I remember when I was first learning um, some of these, Uh, you know, teachings and how to calm myself and these types of tools for myself, I remember before hearing about them, I just would never have considered that this was a thing that we would need to do as far Mm -hmm. as like sitting down and like quieting our thoughts. And I just, you just never really consider that until you start to do it. And then you see the benefit and you're like, oh, okay, like, um, this is why. (laughs) Yeah, my vi- my vision is is that um, I don't know if it'll ever be true in my lifetime, but I would love for every child from preschool or toddlerhood on to be taught how to use breath, how to and children can be taught. That's the thing because they're so little and so form, you know, able to be formed in terms of ways to help themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think about the kids right now that are struggling deeply because they're in the midst of a, amidst a situation that they don't understand or if they do they're scared and they're out of their routines yeah. badly mm-hmm. and they have most of them have no skills because they haven't been taught because we don't teach kids in school as a rule how to manage their emotions how to acknowledge their emotions as valid but to then manage them so they don't overtake them We teach kids that if they have a lot of energy, that that's bad, and we label it as attention deficit disorder, or we, again, we label even little children with these names and diagnoses instead of finding ways for them to use that creative or that bountiful energy in outlets that make sense or that are creative or productive. They end up feeling bad about who they are, and then they can't manage anything. It's really sad. Yeah, I mean, I think you're outlining my life. (laughs) (laughs) But really, though, because it wasn't until I kind of crashed and burned a little bit and then Mm -hmm. uh, went to therapy and figured out these coping skills, and I didn't even really know that I was able to make art which makes no sense because everybody's able to make art but it's just the way that you're raised and I was raised as a very sporty athletic person so yeah it's interesting I feel like now I I my 20s were really chaotic and um I think if I knew had some of these tools it wouldn't maybe have been so chaotic so I agree with you I would like your vision to come true yeah, me too. Yeah. It might. Who knows? I mean, especially with the way things are now, maybe it will be an opportunity for people to really want to amp up how they can, we can teach people how to care for themselves in really loving, caring ways, you know? 
Right. Yeah. Well, I, so speaking of that, uh, do you want to speak a little bit about your um, hugging army? Sure. I'd love to. So, so five years ago, I tried an experiment here in Scranton. I'd seen a video of this guy giving free hugs in some city in Turkey. He was doing it with a blindfold on. And I thought that seemed really interesting and really trusting. And I wanted to try it. So I tried it here in Scranton. It was a really cool success. Brenda came with me and she took photos of a lot of the hugs, which were really moving and intimate and beautiful. It was just a beautiful experience. Something in that experience, I mean, I've always been a physically affectionate person with people that I know, but I didn't really know the power of hugs. And then I had that experience, which was really profound. And then I kept offering hugs, no, not blindfolded, but I just made a sign and started offering hugs. And it created this interesting phenomenon for me that, um, first of all, I learned about people all over the world that do the same thing, which I'd never known. I also came to understand the power of physical touch, but also the degree to which some people through past trauma or bad experience or fear of germs or whatever that are really averse to um, physical touch, they're really scared of it or they really don't like it, especially with strangers. So I've gotten to learn over the years about respecting and honoring people's space it's kind of evolved to where at first it was, you know, I'm offering this great thing as, such as a free hug. So I know people will just be dying to have that. And now it's more of I enjoy offering it as a, you know, being a presence in a space, whether it's a festival or a, a first Friday or whatever, and allowing people to just make their own decision. But even if no one hugs me, I get to still be this presence you know yeah, I get to that's a great shine way my... to look at it yeah yeah is, is it hard like I mean is it hard if like nobody wants to hug you or if somebody's it's, rude we- about it's it? weird I well it's not it's not as weird anymore I always get nervous before I go out and stand and hug because that's what I do I don't I don't ask people for hugs I I have done that before but the last couple of years I basically just put the sign on or hold the sign and I stand somewhere and I let whatever happens happen. But there are, there have been several occasions where I go and I receive very few or no hugs. And it's always become an interesting practice of presence for me. As I stand there, I feel self-conscious. But then I, again, deepen into my breathing and just remember what it is I'm there for. You know, what is my purpose here? It isn't to count how many hugs I get. It's to be available to people that may need it. And that's the great part of what happens is that even if I'm somewhere for two hours and I get five hugs, they're from people that really need them or really feel inspired by it or whatever. You know, they always seem to get to the people that really need to have them, which is really cool. That is really cool. Mm -hmm. So do you... So do you ever get afraid? Um, Yeah, quite often I do Um, because I travel a lot when I do them. Uh, So sometimes if I'm traveling alone, going to a city I'm unfamiliar with, I might be nervous or scared. Uh, Sometimes I get scared, maybe not for my physical safety, but I get scared to be judged or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, viewed strangely. That's, that's probably the biggest feeling of fear I have, and especially now. So even if I'm out in public and I'm wearing like a free hugs shirt, I feel self-conscious right now because people are really scared. I don't want the message to get lost, but I also know that people are terrified to even touch each other right now because of this virus. You know, it's so... Um, it's so scary for so many. So I want to honor that too. So I, it's kind of gone underground for a little while, but yeah. I know it'll, I know it will come back. I have every faith it will for sure. Definitely. Okay. So you've gone all over. So where are some of the places that you've been to? 
I've been to Charleston, South Carolina, Raleigh, North Carolina, been on three tours. And the first one I went to, the furthest point south I went was called Fort Payne, Alabama. I stayed with some friends there and did some hugging. Washington, D.C. I was supposed to go to New York City last weekend. That was planned like two months in advance, but of course I had to cancel that. Philadelphia, I've hugged with a friend of mine at the Love Sculpture in Philly, which is really cool. Florida, I did a full tour in Florida a couple years ago. Chattanooga, Tennessee. Lexington, Kentucky, that's where my son lives, and I hug whenever I'm there visiting him. Do you ever Um, do it in small towns? uh, Yeah, I'll basically go anywhere I'm invited. We were supposed to go on a tour this year in May, and my son was actually coming with me. We were going to go across, literally across the country, and we were going to do hugs wherever we stopped along the route. want to do a New England tour. I haven't done that yet to do New Hampshire, Vermont, mm-hmm. Maine. Sometimes when I'm traveling, I'll just wear the sign when I get out of the car and go into the rest area or into a grocery store and just to kind of see what the response is wherever I am. So, yeah, big or small, I, I, love, uh, I love spreading the message. so brave. It's so brave because <laughs> you probably get all kinds of reactions. And I'm thinking about... Like, you, every place that you go to has to have, like, a different reaction because, I mean, me just living in uh, the Midwest for a little bit, their reaction to something like that would be completely different than a reaction of what you would get in Philadelphia. So it's got to be, a like, an interesting uh, sociological experiment as well to see yeah, how different... Yeah, that part has been interesting. My... The- the most friendly people anywhere so far, hands down, was um, anywhere I was in North Carolina. North Carolina was probably the most friendly state I've visited and been hugged in. It's That's incredible cool. there. That's cool. So what are the so what are the benefits of hugging? So it lowers blood pressure. It um, regulates the heart rate. It improves mood. So it releases. I. Uh, maybe serotonin, oxytocin, like it, it it releases the hormones that help with pain reduction, physical pain, as well as increase the mood. So it creates a mood boost. Putting the your arms around another person and them around you, just putting the pressure around each other's body just helps muscles to relax. They say that a full-on hug should last about a minute because that really allows all the benefits hormonally and otherwise to really kick in. And when I teach people, so I actually do workshops sometimes. I haven't in a long time, but where I'll teach people about mindful hugging, it's called. So a mindful hug is three full breaths in and out. And um, that is that ends up being about a minute. And it just allows for both parties to really sink into the hug. Like it's really cool when I'm, standing and usually when I stand I wear my free hug sign so my arms are free I hold my arms out open I love the moments where I hug someone and then I feel after about 10 seconds they I actually feel them exhale like a big sigh of relief and feel their shoulders go down and it's really beautiful because it's you know, you have to hug someone for a long enough time that you can actually sink into it. And that's usually a couple of breaths. But if you get past that point, it, you really feel the physical benefits. People will say that all the time. That felt so good or I feel so much better or, you know, so it's really a cool phenomenon, you know. Yeah, definitely. And you, so you said before that a lot of people are have struggle with touch and giving hugs. My first question is, do you have a theory as to why? Like, is there, like, something culturally that... Are we just not hugging each other enough, or...? I think that there's a couple things at play. I do think that um, people that have sustained some kind of physical physical trauma, whether it's abuse or PTSD from serving in war in the military, I've heard that soldiers that have served especially in combat, are very reluctant about physical touch because they equate it with something dangerous or, you know, unexpected. With a lot of 
people that I see in public, if it's parents with their children, it's rare that they welcome their children to hug a stranger. So I think that's part of it for people is that I think a lot of people reserve that contact for the people that are closest to them in relationship with. I think it's seen as suspect sometimes, you know, like I've had people ask me, you know, what is this for or what's the gimmick or what's the angle or, Mm -hmm. you know, are you, what are you collecting money for? Like just strange questions. But I think because it's hard for people to, to see it just as a gesture of goodwill and kindness. Um, because one of the benefits definitely of hugs more than anything that I've learned over the years is that it creates a feeling of connection with another person. And I don't think we do that enough with strangers. It's easy for us to see people that aren't like us or that we don't know as not being, you know, not being a fellow human being. Like I was talking about earlier, I think it's really easy for us to categorize ourselves and other people into these groups and then see ourselves different from them. And hugs kind of levels the whole playing field for me. Mm-hmm. And But I think people are afraid of that. They're afraid to see that sameness because anything that's outside their comfort zone, some people anyway, anything that's outside our comfort zone, we tend to shy away from. And, and now, of course, any kind of physical touch outside of our immediate, immediate circle is potentially deadly for people and um, hazardous to our health. So I think, I think that was always, always there. What's so funny in an interesting way though, is, you know, I've probably given over the last five years, you know, close to 4,000 hugs to complete strangers. And I've never, it's never gotten me sick. I've never gotten sick from hugging. And when I hug, I'll hug for like hours at a time. And I've never gotten sick after a hug gig. Not once. Do you ever so, get tired of hugging people? No, never. <laughs> wow. No, I love it. I love it. I'm really missing it right now. It's I really know. hard. I was going to ask you, like, so what is, what are, what are kind of some of the feelings you have knowing that, you know, you had some plans to do this and now, uh, now it seems like you've almost taken a few steps back on your mission I mean you haven't but it feels that way so uh... yeah well canceling the tour that was big that was a real blow because I wanted to be cognizant of the coronavirus but I didn't want to be freaked out like inadvertently so I didn't cancel the tour even though you know we were starting with the social distancing and the shutting down of things in my local area, I still didn't cancel because I thought, well, the tour's in May, there's still time. And about two weeks into you know, being isolated at home, I thought, yeah, I'm probably not going to be able to go by May. It's not going to be cleared out. So there's disappointment in not being able to be out in the world and kind of do my thing. But also, then I started to think, well, maybe it means my mission is shifting, that it isn't just to be focused on physical touch and hugging, but in light of this, maybe the message is just to be compassionate and kind, which is all important, too, and it's all the same message anyway. But this weekend, a friend of mine made me a brand-new free hug sign. It's incredible. It's got bright yellow flowers on it. And I thought today, I thought, oh, no. Hugs, hugs will be back. Like I'll be back standing in the street, mm-hmm. holding my arms out and it'll be no different than it ever is. People can still decide if they want to hug or not, but I get to be a presence no matter what. And I think that's the universal message I have to remember for myself is that no matter what, I want to be the visible presence and still allow people to make whatever choice works for them. But I think it sends a message of hope and connection and care and love. And that's what it's about for me anyway. Yeah, well, it kind of speaks to um, impermanence, really, as mm-hmm. you think about it. Because, you know, you can't really make anyone come or go. But like, right. you can't make anyone hug you. But <laughs> it's uh, nice when they do. And it's nice to have that presence either way. So. 
That's totally. Cool. That's a great way to look at it. So that's awesome. Well, if somebody is kind of afraid to hug and like a little bit worried about that physical touch, do you have a way, like, do you have anything to say to them that might help them kind of get over that? It's okay now, barring the coronavirus and the possible modes of transmission right now, there's a lot that's not known. So I think it's perfectly okay for people to be to be cautious right now. I love waves or smiles or even a lot of times when people don't hug me even before this. You know, they would just look at me and say hi or give me a beautiful smile and at least people are willing to see one another like we make eye contact and we see one another as human beings even if we don't touch and that's a really beautiful thing. So that's something that can come out of this for sure is to just actually see another person really be willing to see their sameness to you and for people beyond the coronavirus when it's healthy and welcomed for us to be amongst one another again is to kind of take the risk be willing to cross that divide and go out of your comfort zone a little bit and just you know wrap your arms around someone and just let yourself sink into it give that to yourself be willing to share that with another person. I mean, when you really share a hug with someone, I've had the the rare opportunity a couple times to actually feel the other person's heartbeat. And mm-hmm. again, a complete stranger, but it's a really profound experience to remembering our sameness. I'm thinking of your hugs and I wish I could have one right now. So uh-huh. I can't wait. But I know that like, I definitely am somebody who would just give, like, the half, like, shoulder hug and then go about my way. But you've taught me to, like, the benefit of holding on longer and sinking into mm. it. And I know the feeling. I know what you mean. It's pretty beneficial, I would say, and helpful. And totally. it's sad because we all need it now more than ever, but I have faith that we'll get there again. But I have one last question for you, and I like to always ask people this, but what keeps you holding on? So when you have dark moments with mental health, what is, um, you know, bottom line, what keeps you hanging on? What helps me keep, keeps me hanging on? I'd say hope. I'd really say hope. When I first uh, started, so when um, even before we were kind of shut down as a community and we're asked to stay home, I was told to work from home, which I've been doing now for a month. In the beginning, I was really obsessed with reading the news every day and getting really scared about the numbers and sad about all the people dying and getting sick and you know, I felt really hopeless and then I canceled my tour and I felt really hopeless because that felt like a vision of hope for me that things were going to get better. And Mm -hmm. a couple weeks ago, I took a sign and I went by the Walmart and Target in Dixon City and I just held it up and it said honk for hope on it. And I must have got 200 horn beeps that day. It just, it really inspired me and it seemed to inspire a lot of people because being hopeless is one of the darkest feelings I think I've ever experienced. It doesn't happen very often, but it did happen around this for me about a month ago. I want to do my best to keep my hope alive, even if it's just that I'll wake up and and see another day or or that my son will grow up and live a vital life or that um, the sun will come out tomorrow, whatever it is. But if hope if hope wasn't there for me, I think it would be harder to go on. So that definitely keeps me going. Yeah, I love that. And I have to say, so you kept up the be kind scranton tradition i have to thank you for that but you happen to do it on like the greatest day ever so can we just talk about the fact that your sign was in um a national news source because somebody sent it to me 
I think it was in like the National Enquirer or something like that because they wrote an article about Garrity's and how that person coughed on everything, which was absolutely terrible. But they had your your Be Kind Scranton sign there. And then Oh my gosh, you're kidding. No, That's so cool. I have to send it to you and I don't know why I didn't, but I honestly I've been like on another planet and when that happened I was definitely on another planet, but um, I will I will definitely send that to you. And the other thing that happened that very same day, like a half hour later, is Geisinger also shared it in their newsletter. Um, they had a picture of your sign. I can't believe I didn't tell you any of this. So, yeah, Aww. I'm just a little bit brain dead. Um, but I will definitely send you those things. Um, and you did them. So that's pretty amazing. <gasps> Well, I wanted, that was hope too, because that was really dark in the beginning. I really wanted the people that were really like getting breathed on and coughed on all day long and all night long to really know, like, we appreciate you so much. And Garrity's is my neighborhood grocery store. So I was like, yeah, you guys rock. Like, I'm so I'm so grateful that you're here every day just, you know, helping us to have what we need and um and it felt like what's really funny about the Be Kind Scranton part is that it really felt like a Be Kind Scranton message whether we had formally put it together or not it just felt like yeah. that's what this is about and when I talked about it with the times the Scranton times did an article. And when I talked to them about it, I said, you know, I, I love my city and I want my city to know, you know, our city to know that it's loved and we can come back from this. It's a terrible time, but I believe that we can have hope and come back from this. And, and that's really what I believe, you know? I love that. I love that. Well, you definitely inspire me so much, Vanessa. So thank Uh, you for everything that you do. I love having you in my life. You're a real real gift. Thanks. Same (laughs) to you. Do you have any questions or anything you want to add? Well, I'd love to know from you, like, what do you, are are you learning anything about yourself through this whole, um, you know, isolation and circumstance and how do you see it helping you as you go forward in your life? Yeah. What you're learning. Yeah, I think, I think I definitely am learning a lot. Um, it's interesting because I feel like I'm going through different stages. So in the, fr- the beginning, mm-hmm. I was very like panicked and um, scattered all over the place. And then now, and then, well, then I kind of calmed down, but then I was just bored and kind of mm-hmm. scared about when I'm going to see my family again and, a little bit delirious like talking to myself almost and everything was funny for a few days there because I'm by myself so I'm just like but then now it's like almost I feel like I've reached a level of calm that I have not felt in a very long time so I really do feel like I'm just taking it as a time to better myself but I realize that um this is the first time where maybe I feel like I've gone through something traumatic I in a way and luckily you know at this time I haven't been touched personally knock on wood and like so fortunate by any family members having COVID um though I have known a few people who have had it I count my blessings every day I think that it's one of the few times where everybody collectively is going through something tough at the very same time and there's something that's tough about that, but there's also a power in that for me um, because mm-hmm. I think that we're less apt to really, um, I don't want to say complain, nobody's complaining, but we're less likely to make things worse because we all yeah. know that everybody's already struggling. Whereas if I was individually going through something, I might be a little bit more of a pain in the ass about it. (laughs) So I think that for me, I really have tried my best to make it a growth experience in finding my own patience and understanding that everybody is afraid and everybody is stressed. And so my personal responsibility is to create peace in whatever way I can and Mm. that might be the only little control I have over it but 
if I'm focusing on that, then at least I feel like I'm doing my part. Yeah. So there's good and bad. Yeah. Yeah. I love that, though, because I believe that, too, that when we carry, you know, carry the flame within ourselves, it does spread. And, you know, the message I try to transmit to anyone on social media or when I'm talking to them on the phone is just you've got to tend to your own inner light and your inner essence first in mm-hmm. order to be able to shine that for others and people will see it and they'll respond to it. But you've got to care for that vessel first and foremost. That's the, that's the only way to go forward for any of us. Yeah. That, I think that's powerful. And I think that's difficult to, it is, adapt. it is <laughs> for a lot of reasons, but it's so essential, especially right now. It is, it is. And there have been times where I felt a little torn because there, I would know that people were struggling and I know that they'd maybe feel lonely and wanted to talk. And then I was like, I can't handle that right now, but I wanted uh-huh. to be there for them. So yeah, it's hard to find that balance. It is. Well, anyway, Vanessa, I'm very happy to have had you on the show and to have known you and um, that you were able to share your message with us today because I'm personally inspired and I find a lot of hope in it and I'm very grateful for you. Um, So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. And stay safe and healthy, okay? Okay, you do the same. Thank you. You're welcome. So one of the best things I think about humans, one of the most interesting things, one of the things that speaks to me the most in these conversations, in everyday life, just in general, is really what humans do on their own to put some kind of energy or mark into the world, whether it's art, painting, Sending cards to strangers, writing, inmates in jail, hanging signs outside, you name it. And so I really, really enjoyed hearing somebody talk about something that is so passionate to them and maybe outside of what we would consider, I don't know, typical behavior. Uh, it's not like us, many of us, to get up on a Saturday morning and go outside and hold a sign out saying, hug me. Well, it doesn't say hug me, it says free hugs. And I just really love that. I love when people have an idea, they think of something in their soul, and they have enough confidence, bravery, and courage to make it happen. And then to watch it grow, it's just one of my favorite things. Well, I hope that you enjoyed the show this week. And I was, I would normally recommend giving somebody a hug. Um, So here's what I'm going to do. If you're in a situation where you can hug somebody, whether it's your spouse or a family member, give them a hug and try to do it for the whole minute. See how it feels and if you sink into it. If you can't do that, or if you don't want to do that, or if you want to do two things, I challenge you this week, as Vanessa said, to recenter yourself whenever you feel like you're off center. So if you feel angry or you can feel yourself starting to get frustrated with something that you're working on or somebody says something to you that really throws you off. I challenge you to take five deep breaths before you do anything else and see if that helps. Okay, well, that's all I have for you today. If you liked what you heard, please remember to like and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're listening on Apple iTunes and you could give me a five-star review, that will really help the show be found by many people. And um, But the single best thing that you could do for the show is simply just to share it, either via social media, email, or by telling a friend. 
I love to get these stories out here. I love to have people hear them and maybe think to themselves, what can I do? What can I put out into the world? What is my passion? So um, definitely, I can definitely appreciate that. I'm always accepting one-time donations in order to help me with equipment, editing, outreach, marketing, and also reaching a farther audience so I can hopefully start interviewing people from a little bit outside of the area, although I definitely love my Scranton people. The other thing you can do is listen to Joe Burke's music. Joe Burke does the music at the beginning and the end of every episode, and it's magical, and so is the rest of his discography. So check that out on wherever you stream music, or you can buy his album on iTunes or Bandcamp, or go to a local record store and get it on vinyl. Okay. Well, that's all I have for you, actually. This time, for real, this is all I have for you for this week. Till next time, I hope you have a beautiful week. (laughs) 